when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Boris Johnson began a new phase of his government this week with large new spending commitments on defense and a green deal to rebuild the economy after coronavirus. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, I'll be examining Boris Johnson's 10-point green recovery plan, how much is new, and whether it can help the Tories hold on to their new voters in the North and Midlands of England. Joining me to dissect is Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Associate Editor and Columnist Polita Clark. And later, we'll also be diving into the huge increases in defence spending announced by the Prime Minister this week. Why has Johnson gone above what was expected and who are the big winners? And what does it all mean for the upcoming Whitehorse spending review? Political editor George Parker and defence editor Helen Worrell will explain. Jim and Polita, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Seb. Thanks so much, Seb. Great to be here. Obviously, the green agenda has been dominating everything this week with a lot of talk about electric cars. And we now know that petrol cars will be banned for sale from 2030. And this, of course, raised the question, should we all be buying them now? It's something that I've thought about. I do want to have an electric car. But what about you? What's your thoughts? My current automotive is so shameful, I can't even admit what it is, other than it's one of the cleaner diesels. I just think I would love an electric car if I just spent all my time driving to the local store in suburbia. But I'm still worried about the lack of infrastructure. What if you sort of ended up stuck on a hillside in the Lake District with your electric car rusting? I don't know. I would love to get one at some point. Well, I feel the same way as you that, again, I would love to have one. I've got a petrol red mini, which I absolutely adore and have been driving a lot around the country recently. What about your thoughts, please? Because it just doesn't feel to me as if doing long journeys from London to the north of England is really practical in an electric car. No, well, I would really, really like an electric car. I have an ancient Prius, very much a hybrid. I'm afraid I probably burn more petrol than I use those wonderful uh, low-carbon electrons. But where I live, there are very few charging stations. So I'm terrified of this idea of heading off into the countryside and being stuck in a Tesco waiting for 14 cars to finish charging before I can get on. So I am really hoping that Mr. Johnson's charging infrastructure goal is met. I'll be right in there if I can. I think all three of us have failed on our eco-credentials, but let's crack into the main story of the week and see if Mr Johnson is doing better. Boris Johnson has always been keen to burnish his green credentials and has put tackling climate change at the front of his government's agenda. He has done so again this week, setting out a long-awaited plan to make the UK a world leader in green technology. As with most government announcements, however, there were plenty of spending commitments already made being re-announced. But the most ardent criticism came from those Tories who said it goes against the party's new electoral base and could cost them votes. But Business Secretary Alok Sharma rejected this notion. This is about levelling up across our country. We're talking about uh, £12 billion and yes, around 
Four billion pounds of this is new money. Other money is money that's been pledged uh, previously or indeed at the last uh, budget in, in, in March. Uh, uh, but very importantly, uh, this 12 billion pounds will help to bring in three times as much in terms of private sector money uh, and support and create 250,000 jobs. But there have been some critics of this plan arguing that it really doesn't go far enough. The shadow business secretary, Ed Miliband, made this point. There isn't enough urgency. There isn't enough ambition. There isn't a real plan. He's got to do better. It's in all of our interests that he does better. And we will keep pushing the government on ambition, on jobs, on a proper plan to rise to the scale of the climate emergency we face. Jim Picard, let's begin with this 10-point plan that Boris Johnson set out in an article in the Financial Times, in fact. What did you make of it and how much of it was new money and new policy? Okay, so this was a a very long-awaited announcement. They were meant to originally do it back in the summer and it slipped because of other pressures on number 10. The Prime Minister announced a £12 billion state investment programme When you went through the numbers, it turned out that only about three billion pounds of this was new. That included 500 million for hydrogen, another one billion pounds for home insulation, 300 million pounds for the nuclear industry. I think what was particularly interesting, even if the money was pretty small change when you compare it to other countries like France or Germany, or if you indeed compare it to the Jeremy Corbyn Labour Manifesto of 2019, which was literally talking in terms of hundreds of billions of pounds of borrowed money going towards a Green New Deal. I think it's still a political moment because there's always this tension between people saying, let's go green, and other people in the Conservative Party saying, will that damage the economy? And what about people in working class northern areas? So kind of stereotypes slightly, but the sort of general public who worry about paying extra tax on sort of green initiatives. And Boris Johnson was explicitly saying, don't worry, we can tie these two things together and we can make sure that this green economic growth happens in some of the left-behind red wall areas, and talking about places like Humber or Mansfield or the Northeast. Well, Polita Clark, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. What were your thoughts when you saw this announcement here? Because Boris Johnson has talked a lot about green policy ever since last summer, but it feels as if that rhetoric has increased. And as Jim has said, there is some new money and some new policies to go with it too. There is, Seb. But my first thought about this was, A, it's brilliant to hear a British Conservative Prime Minister coming up with a plan like this, because although we've had David Cameron promising the greenest government ever, and then we had Theresa May actually legislating for a net zero for 2050, which was very pioneering for a country the size of Britain at the time, the thing is that we really haven't seen a Prime Minister set out in a speech or in a plan like this anything as visionary, really. And it is a great vision. Unfortunately, it's really not matched by detailed plans. And considering that a large chunk of it is dependent on trying to mobilise private investor capital, I'm just concerned that it's really not going to make it. Investors are not going to invest unless they see the detailed policy until they know what the shape of any sort of regulatory framework is going to look like. You're really not going to get people ploughing in at the rate needed to fulfil this. And when it comes to actually meeting that net zero goal by 2050, it's really not on track to do that, unfortunately. The classic example of that chopping and changing, which has provided uncertainty for investors, If you look at one of the elements of the Boris Johnson announcement, which was carbon and capture storage, which is basically where you suck out carbon dioxide and you bury it deep under the ground, 
The George Osborne, David Cameron government promised a billion pounds towards that. And then in 2015, they pulled the plug on that money. What Boris Johnson has done this year is he promised 800 million pounds in the spring budget. He added another 200 million pounds this week. Hey, presto, we're literally back where we were five years ago with basically almost no progress on CCF. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it had the sort of essay crisis feel about it, really. It was, you know, oh, God, we've got to do something on climate. Um, Okay, what do we do on electric cars? Oh, I know, we'll bring the target forward. That's actually relatively easy to do. It's important, but unless it's matched by policy setting out how people are going to be able to buy more electric cars and how the rollout of the charging infrastructure is going to work, you know, it's really difficult to see how it works. I expected, I guess, to see something a little more imaginative. Parts of this plan are new when it comes to at least the targets for making sure that new homes are not built with natural gas boilers in them, for example. You know, that's really quite important. And of course, that target itself has been brought forward slightly from 2025 to 2023, it seemed. The support for hydrogen, also important. But again, you know, when you look at what Germany's doing in its recovery plan, it's got around 40, 41 billion set aside for electric cars, renewable energy, and so forth. And France, around 30 billion euros set aside. Nine billion of that is for hydrogen and renewables alone. So compared to that, the UK plan does look a little small. Well, Jim, this is one thing critics have picked up on the plan. Ed Miliband, who is the Labour's shadow business secretary, has said it doesn't remotely meet the scale of what is needed. And I think Greenpeace charity have said similar things too. Are those criticisms fair, do you think? Because when it comes to government spending, you can always make the case you should be spending more and doing more radical things. And as Polita noted, this is a conservative government. This is not natural territory for them. Yeah, and I think the first point to make is that Alex Sharman, the business secretary, said on the radio, this is a down payment, but there will be more fiscal events. And it's quite possible that in the spending review that we see next week, there could be more money, for example, for nuclear. They could say they're going to start negotiations on the Sizewell C nuclear power station, which would, of course, involve more money. And I think as well, you know, I was talking earlier about how these were very small sums compared to what a Labour government would be doing right now. But the thing to remember is that tackling climate change isn't just about state money, it's also about regulation. So, of course, the ban on 2030 buying and new petrol and diesel cars, that's an example of where the government doesn't actually have to spend the money, it can regulate and things happen. And so many of these decisions have stemmed from Theresa May's decision in the dying moments of her administration to commit Britain to the 2050 net zero target, almost as a kind of afterthought. She'd done no kind of political persuasion job on this. She barely talked about it. Even now, no one would think of Theresa May as a great green figurehead. And yet she took this legislative decision from which all sorts of future decisions have to stem. But I think the thing to remember in terms of, is this ambitious enough? It's very easy to imagine a world where Britain's electricity is no longer coming from fossil fuels. That we're kind of on target for, I think, unless Polita disagrees. You have to remember that the British energy system, like any other country's energy system, consists not only of electricity, but also the transport system, and thirdly, household energy. All three of those need to be decarbonised, and I don't really know whether we're on track to do that at the speed that needs to be done. Well, Polita, one of the criticisms of this has obviously been about how it plays into the Johnson government's wider political agenda with regards to the Red War. That's those areas that voted Tory for the first time 
last year's general election. And critics have been saying that these kind of softer issues, I think someone described it as this week, won't go down well with those voters. But the argument of the government is in fact actually saying that this is going to create jobs and it is going to lead to, you know, a manufacturing renaissance in these places. And that becomes especially important after coronavirus. What do you make of that? You know, do you think it will bring a tangible difference to some of these left behind places? I think it could. You know, I think we need to um, also bear in mind that, as Jim says, we are expecting to see more announcements on this strategy, not just in the spending review, but also later in December when the government will be responding to advice on um, accepting new targets for 2030, really, in line with its hosting of the UN COP26 Climate Summit next year. So I think we will see much more than we're going to need to because the early analysis of this plan suggests that it's only going to go about 55% of the way to plugging the hole we have in our current fourth and fifth carbon budgets, which last from around 2023 to 2032. But when it comes to what it's going to mean for jobs and the red wall, I'm actually quite hopeful that if the government does end up explaining the plan and going through in detail how it's going to meet these targets and these goals, then the 250,000 green jobs that it's talking about are very much a possibility. And I think we've already seen in offshore wind, which is a big part of this strategy, that that has increased green jobs quite substantially in parts of the country where they were very much needed. So I'm hopeful about that. I do worry somewhat about the carbon capture and storage strategy. We are talking there about clusters in some areas where the government has been trying to focus on boosting employment. And The sums of money provided thus far are not really that encouraging. There have been repeated efforts to get this off the ground. And those of us who uh, have spent many, many years writing about efforts to do this are just a little bit wary of hoping too much that it'll work this time. And Jim, we've obviously got to put this in the context of what happened in Downing Street over the past week with the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, two of Boris Johnson's closest aides. And number 10 is trying to paint this as a reset, a new phase of the government, as Boris Johnson has described it in private. And that includes a stylistic change in how the government is putting things across, a slightly less aggressive approach towards the media. You could say maybe it's no coincidence Boris Johnson made his debut on the FT's op-ed pages this week. But there is this question about policy. And we know that Dominic Cummings wasn't a fan of this green agenda so much, but it was something that the Prime Minister's fiance Carrie Simons, has been privately lobbying for too. Yeah. And I know that the ban on petrol and diesel cars could have been a little later. It could have been 2032 rather than 2030. And Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane were apparently among those people pushing for a more cautious target. Because the truth is that Yes, there are new jobs associated with these new industries, but there are also jobs that will be lost by things like the phasing out of coal-fired and gas-fired power stations. And if you look at the union movement, there's a real split between, let's say, the GMB, the heavy manufacturing union, which is really sceptical compared to some of the other unions on this. And it's not that hard to sort of scaremonger people against certain green initiatives. There was a front-page headline on Monday suggesting that Chancellor Rishi Sunak is looking at road pricing, clearly a policy that would alarm most motorists, not least when the price of an electric car is as high as it is. Now, fascinatingly, I was told by multiple people in the Treasury that Rishi Sunak had no such plans whatsoever. And it almost made you wonder whether certain hostile elements put that out there 
as a way of trying to discredit the whole broader Boris Johnson green agenda. But it was fascinating to see certain parts of the media pretty much back the Prime Minister, including the Daily Express, which I don't think you would have seen 10 years ago. And Polito, obviously, you mentioned that this is a quite unusual thing coming from a Conservative Prime Minister. And I think those who put Boris Johnson in the same camp as right-wing populists like Donald Trump would say that the big thing that differentiates him is his view on the climate. He's not a climate sceptic. He has pushed his agenda. We mentioned his PR partner, Carrie Simons, earlier. His father, Stanley Johnson, has also been a big environmental campaigner, too. It's very interesting how the narrative in the UK about climate change on the right is so different to elsewhere, including your native Australia. That is certainly true. And in fact, it's really interesting in Australia, politicians who support any kind of climate action are constantly quoting Boris Johnson and saying, you know, look at what the British Conservatives are doing. And of course, they used to do the same thing with Theresa May and David Cameron. And that would be Labour politicians as much as Conservative politicians over there. And yeah, it's when you put Mr. Johnson into a global context, you're absolutely right. He is in no way similar to Mr. Trump or uh, any other of the populist leaders. But just going back to the earlier conversation about the number 10 reset, unfortunately, a large part of the way this message was shaped this week did have echoes of some of the strategies we've seen before. You know, you'd get these big announcements, usually something to do with electric car targets, Then the detail would come out later, which is exactly what happened this week, where we had the announcement followed by the 38-page government handout, which in itself was just remarkably lacking in detail. And there were intriguing hints in Mr. Johnson's op-ed for us, where he's talking about this meeting he was going to be having with business leaders and carbon pricing was apparently going to be discussed. That's the sort of detail that should have been announced at the same time as the original 10 points. One expects these sorts of things to be all coming in one package so everybody understands what's happening rather than the way it was done, which of course did create some terrific headlines. But um, when it came to the detail, those of us who look closely for these things are still left scratching our heads. Peter and Jim, thank you. Well, it really has been the week for splashing the cash. As well as green matters, the Prime Minister pledged £16.5 billion for defence spending, the biggest investment since the end of the Cold War, and what the Prime Minister called the end of the era of retreat. It's a big win for cyber, space and AI, and the Royal Navy too, which Mr Johnson said would become the biggest maritime force in Europe once again. This surprise boost for the armed forces can be seen in many different ways, necessary or a sticking plaster. But it does suggest the upcoming spending review for all Whitehall departments will be tough. Mr Johnson told MPs why defence in particular is being prioritised. Our national security in 20 years' time will depend on decisions we take today. I've done this in the teeth of the pandemic amid every other demand on our resources because the defence of the realm and the safety of the British people must come first. Helen Wall, welcome back to the podcast. I'm sure a lot of people at the MOD and the defence community were very excited by these announcements. How big of a deal is it? I mean, look, I think there's no disguising the fact that this really is a big deal. Military chiefs across the country and defence officials in MOD were steeling themselves for a pretty austere one-year spending settlement, which wouldn't have allowed them to go ahead and make any of the really sort of bold, ambitious, longer-term plans that they want to do to digitise and modernise the armed forces. And instead, from the jaws of potential defeat, Boris Johnson obviously managed to intervene with Rishi Sunak in the Treasury and 
agree this much longer term four-year deal, which does give the department now enough certainty to really plough ahead and invest in space, invest in cyber, and do this big sort of naval infrastructure increase, which Boris said would restore Britain to the foremost naval power in Europe. Now, when you talk about the certainty here, because of course, Vishy Sunak, the Chancellor, Helen, was set to do a spending review that would have set all the decisions for the next four years. But the MOD has been arguing very vigorously it needed more certainty than the one year other Whitehall departments are getting. Why is that? It's partly because the MOD has found itself in a very difficult financial position. It's got a £13 billion black hole in its 10-year equipment budget, which is caused by essentially pretty poor stewardship of large sort of defence investment programmes. And as a department, it doesn't have a particularly great record in keeping its procurement projects on time and on budget. And One of the things that officials have repeatedly argued is when you've got a hole in your finances that big, you have to be able to look into the future and see exactly how much money you're going to have over quite a long time in order to make up that lost money while also investing in new things. Well, George Parker, one of the very interesting things about this is the fact Boris Johnson appears to have personally intervened here. And of course, as we know from all these spending reviews, every minister, every department wants to bend the ear of the top man and try and get him to put money in their direction. But for whatever reason, Boris Johnson seems to have listened to the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. And it doesn't feel as if it was that long ago that some people were saying Ben Wallace was done. Yeah, he was um, being lined up for the chop at the last cabinet reshuffle. I think that was the um, splash in the Daily Telegraph that day that Ben Wallace was going to be axed. And lots of people raised their eyebrows about that because Ben Wallace is one of those people who's been on the long march with Boris Johnson. He was one of the very few people in the parliamentary party who were with Boris Johnson, were determined to make him a potential contender for the party leadership. And Boris Johnson, I think, probably remembers that. He certainly does remember it. And when it came down to it, it was a meeting between Ben Wallace and Boris Johnson where this £16.5 billion settlement was agreed. It obviously goes well beyond just personal loyalty, of course. This is down to the fact that Boris Johnson regards military spending as an important part of projecting his vision of global Britain. People say he's got a sort of romantic attachment to the idea of the Royal Navy patrolling the high seas, defending the trade routes. And of course, once it had been agreed, Rishi Sunak was very quick to issue one of his famous graphics with his name next to it, boasting about how he was funding the £16.5 billion injection. But I think it has to be said, the Treasury was a lot more reluctant about this than the Prime Minister. Indeed, he literally took off the Conservative Party tree and put the Rishi Sunak signature on that graphic that was doing the rounds on social media. Now, of course, not everybody is supportive of this, including Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition. And his complaint, which I think has a bit of merit, is it's putting the cart before the horse here that Mr Johnson is overseeing this big integrated review into the UK's foreign policy. So why are they announcing this first? This is what Sir Keir had to say to MPs. Under my leadership, national security will always be Labour's top priority. So we welcome this additional funding for our defence and security forces. But Mr Speaker, this is a spending announcement without a strategy. The government has yet again pushed back vital parts of the integrated review and there's no clarity over the government's strategic priorities. And then there's the question of money. How will this announcement be paid for? Such is the government's handling of this pandemic 
that the UK has the sharpest economic downturn of any G7 country. Helen, do you think the Labour leader has a point here? Because this integrated review has been delayed several times. We're now not expecting it to come out until the new year. And of course, defence feeds into that. I definitely think Keir Starmer has a point, And it's a point that was being made to me yesterday by several sort of military experts, academics, former members of the armed forces. To an extent, this is spending without strategy. And especially for a department like the MOD, which doesn't have a great record on spending, announcing a big boost like this, which is higher than expected, without a very, very clear direction, is a big risk because there's a potential that every military chief, you know, all three of the services now look at this and think, right, brilliant, you know, I can get my big programme through. There's a potential that a bit of discipline is lost there. On the integrated review itself, this has been delayed several times. And actually, it's actually quite difficult to give a proper rationale for why this is. I mean, the new National Security Advisor, David Frost, is obviously still tied up negotiating Brexit. And I think one of the reasons behind delaying this is that If the new review is announced in the new year, that will be after the end of the Brexit transition period. And potentially Boris Johnson will be able to sort of launch his diplomatic defence and security strategy for a new UK that is fully and properly independent. And George, he's obviously trying to play the slightly patriotic card here as well. And if you were being cynical, you could square this off with the green announcements we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that that's something that appeals to more metropolitan voters who care more about the environment, whereas defence always goes down well with the Tory backbenches. It's something that will go down very well with the red wall. And you can see that, you know, it's a good way of trying to square things off. And of course, it's all part of this number 10 reset, this new phase the Prime Minister has been talking about. Yes, I think the Prime Minister has been very careful to set both the announcement on the green industrial revolution, as he calls it, and the big injection of cash into defence as being very much about jobs and investment that will particularly benefit uh, northern industrial areas. That's certainly very much the forefront of his mind, given the fact that money generally is going to be quite well, very tight over the rest of the parliament. I think he's making the most of these announcements. I think really Boris Johnson now is trying to look beyond the end of the year, beyond the end of the transition period, when I think many of us expect there to be a Brexit deal, possibility of a COVID vaccine coming on the sort of scene. And then what does Britain look like then? Well, look at the priorities for Boris Johnson in 2021. He's going to be chairing the G7, He's going to be chairing the UN COP26 Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. And on both those things, he wants to show Britain as having a world leadership role. So that's what the green announcements are about. And it's also about reassuring our Western partners, particularly President-elect Biden, that we're serious about maintaining our defence commitments. Yes, Helen, that was one thing that I did wonder from this week is how much has the presidential election affected this? Because we know that the outgoing President Trump was no fan of NATO and kept talking about potentially withdrawing the US or cutting its contributions. Whereas we know the new president, Joe Biden, will certainly want to strengthen the US's role in that. And in the fact that we've been told that there is resetting Downing Street with the departure of Dominic Cummings and other vote leave people. The winds were coming across the Atlantic of a different kind of politics. Do you think it's affected the government's view on defence as well? I'm absolutely sure it has. You know, Joe Biden's team are very clear. They're going to be very strong voices within NATO. The US has always wanted to encourage other NATO partners to live up to their spending commitments and meet those targets. I mean, the UK is already 
the second largest defence spender in NATO after the US. But the point that's been made by Downing Street this week is that this announcement about new funding absolutely cements that position. And this is a good way of signalling to a new incoming US administration that Britain post-Brexit actually has a confidence about its place in the world. It knows what it wants to do. It wants to be a military partner. It's going to send its new aircraft carrier on her maiden voyage early next year to East Asia, Boris Johnson confirmed yesterday. So this is very much saying we are going to stand with the US and other allies and not curl up, as Boris Johnson said, sort of away from our responsibilities, but stand strong. Now, next week is going to be the spending review, which should have been a landmark moment for the Johnson government, with defence being a big part of that. But of course, coronavirus has come along, cost the government about £200 billion. It didn't think it was going to need to spend. And even though the MOD might be very happy with what it's got, and it's got all this extra money for extra kit and the like, it's not going to be so good for other Whitehall departments. What are you hearing about what might be coming from the Chancellor on Wednesday? Well, I think what you're seeing here is the government getting the good news out this week <laughs> before the bad news comes next week in the spending review. So we've heard about the investment in green projects. We've heard about the defence initiative. We're going to hear a lot more about infrastructure spending as well over the weekend, I think. But where's the money coming from at the public finance forecast, which I think are going to dominate the news coverage next week? We were told this week that they were going to be scary. So we're looking out for the bad news next week, which will include a public sector pay freeze for most workers apart from NHS staff. And we're also looking at a very controversial plan to cut the overseas aid budget, which, as you know, is enshrined in law at 0.7% of GDP. Now, that was coming down, of course, because our GDP has shrunk. But Rishi Sunak's looking to cut that percentage to 0.5% on a temporary basis, saving about £4 billion. That's going to be very controversial next week. I think what the chance it's hoping for from a media presentation point of view is that next week will be dominated by other stuff, including Brexit, including what the government's going to do next on the COVID lockdown in England, and that maybe they get the credit for the good news, and then the bad news is slightly buried on Wednesday. And finally, Helen, of course, the accusation that's been thrown about by certain people is to say, well, in that context, when the public finances are in a dire strait, is this a good use of money, spending all this money on defence when you can't pay overseas aid? Are we making the right decisions here? The point that has been made very strongly by both Boris Johnson and by Ben Wallace is this is not just an investment in defence for its own sake. It's an investment in defence which will absolutely boost and help the UK's post-COVID recovery. One of the big things that the Prime Minister announced yesterday was that we're going to be building more Type 26 and Type 21 frigates. There's going to be a renewal in the fleet solid support contract. This means, essentially, the industry around the UK will receive an injection of cash at a time when the economy potentially is looking in dire straits. George and Helen, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Josh Delamere and Anna Dedder. The sound engineer was Louise Burton and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.